Walk, believer, walk, Daniel. Walk, believer, walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Don't believe us, Daniel. Don't believe us, Daniel. Don't tell you, Daniel. Don't tell you, Daniel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. I am, as always, your faithful host, Daniel Finneran. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this channel, recommend it to a friend, and perhaps consider visiting my other podcast and my other channel, Numa by Daniel Finneran, on which we have a lot of mindfulness and meditation content. It's my honor and privilege to have a discussion with the esteemed Evan Mandery today. Professor Mandery is the author of eight books, three of nonfiction, including his latest work, and the one about which we'll be talking at some length, Poison Ivy, How Elite Colleges Divide Us, uh, available where all good books are sold, and four of fiction, including one entitled Dreaming of Gwen Stefani, someone to whom my own reveries are not infrequently devoted, and that's something about which I want to talk as well. Uh, Professor Mandery, or Evan Mandery, is a double Harvard graduate. Uh, he went there for his undergraduate years and also for law school, which makes him something of an expert, having been both inside and outside that institution, as someone who can uh, most uh, aptly criticize it. Uh, his expertise is in the death penalty, he is currently a professor of ethics and law uh, for more than two decades, I should say, at uh, the John Jay College of Criminal Justice at CUNY, which is the City University of New York. And he currently resides in Montclair, New Jersey with his wife and children. Uh, Evan, thank you so very much for joining me today. My pleasure to be here. So I want to begin uh, with the definition of a term. Now, in a classic volume of essays entitled The Idea of a University, the English clergyman John Henry Newman spells out, in language as lucid as it is beautiful, his definition of a university. Now, the Anglican apostate and future Roman Catholic cardinal said, and I quote, if I were asked to describe as briefly and as popularly as I could what a university was, I should draw my answer from its ancient designation of a studium generale, or school of universal learning. This description implies the assemblage of strangers from all parts of the country in one spot. In its simple and rudimentary form, it is a school of knowledge of every kind, consisting of teachers and learners from every quarter. It is the place in which the intellect may safely range and speculate, sure to find its equal in some antagonist activity and its judge in the tribunal of truth. It is a place where inquiry is pushed forward and discoveries verified and perfected and rashness rendered innocuous and error exposed by the collision of mind with mind and knowledge with knowledge. Evan, I pose to you the very same question with which the recently canonized John Henry Newman opened his series of essays into which, in the foregoing passage, 
he eloquently put forth his response. What to you is a university? Well, I'm so glad that Newman finally made saint. Uh, that's the best learn of the day. Um, you know, I think my personal definition would be similar to that. Um, you know, what's a school? A school, a university is uh, opens its doors to anybody who wants to learn and, and helps elevate them to maximize their potential. So I don't know. I, I you know, I'm, I'm proud that I teach at a public college. I teach anybody who comes through my doors. Um, I see, look, certain things you teach, there are some maybe prerequisites of knowledge or capacity. So I could imagine why MIT only lets in people that have already mastered calculus. So I guess I could understand that. But a liberal arts college, I mean, what do you need? You need a capacity to read and you need a curious mind. And, and that, that's the ideal of the university, I think. Of course, it has nothing to do with what universities in the United States actually are. So can you speak to that a little bit more? It seems as though the university, as described by St. Newman, have, have veered very far from what I take to be a very kind of inspiring and democratic ideal of what the university could be. And I came across that volume in, in my uh, Harvard classics that, that adorn my wow. shelf there, the, the Elliott classics, of course. Um, and I, I was taken back by just how democratically spirited that that definition is. Do you think in some ways we've strayed from that? In some ways, <laughs> I mean, in almost every regard. Are the Eliot classics, by the way, are they T.S. Eliot or are they Charles Eliot, the former Harvard president? Charles Eliot, though T.S. Eliot is also accompanying on your shelf. them on the shelf, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Eliot, relatively speaking among Harvard presidents was uh, in context, in historical context, a force for good. Um, he was succeeded by a racist, anti-Semitic, exclusionary figure named uh, Charles Lowell, for whom one of the residential houses is uh, is named. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm joking about the question. I mean, when you say in some respects we've departed from it, I mean, in almost every respect we've departed from it. So in what sense is, I mean, I could focus on elite colleges, which my book is obviously focused on, but I say this with respect to so many private colleges. How many of them are, are really open? How many of them are, are open to, to people who, principally on the basis of their desire to be educated? And how many of them really produce a meaningful diversity of um, diversity in a meaningful sense? I mean, we talk a lot about it in the United. We talk about it in the United States a lot in terms of race. Do you think that we've deviated from that uh, democratically spirited definition of a university um, to which Saint Newman gave voice so many years ago? So you know, we've deviated from we've deviated from uh, that notion in, in almost every imaginable sense right but I, I was saying that you know deviation suggests that we had ever sort of had democratic universities in the united states and i don't really think that's the case so delete i don't think so i mean it's not the case i mean harvard and yale and princeton were never democratic institutions 
they weren't even academically excellent institutions. So as late as the early 20th century, Harvard was just basically a finishing school for Boston Brahmins. Um, you know, it was racist and anti-Semitic. I mean, and um, the professors routinely made fun of their students. Um, interesting, you're right, there are different notions of democracy. It was democratic in the sense that Harvard, admissions to Harvard and, and its peers used to be based on like a single test that you would take. So anybody could theoretically get in, and so long as you could pass the test and pay the money, but the test, for example, included Latin, so you would have to have been to a high school that taught you Latin, and, and that really wasn't preparing people. But, um, you know, if you contrast it with like a college like Berea, which operates in Kentucky, which operates entirely tuition free um, and only admits socioeconomically disadvantaged students. If that's sort of an idealized concept of democracy, um, you know, what do, what do we call a college where more students come from the top, from families in the top 1% of the income distribution than the bottom 60? But that's, that's 38 colleges in the United States. So, We've departed, we're radically far from that. I would say that's probably more an example of continuity than difference, um, but it's undeniably tragic. Perhaps I'm wrong, and I think I'm wrong, in calling it democratic, or at least in calling Newman's, Cardinal Newman's or St. Newman's description of the university system as democratic. I, I, I was focusing in on his idea of taking students from every part of the country and the faculty and staff from, from every part of the country. I think that struck a chord with me. With I me too. I, yeah, I, yeah. I have no problem with your use of the word democratic. I think it yeah. captures something. I just don't think it captures yeah, and, what and universities I, actually do. As, right no, yes, absolutely. And as you, um, as you responded, I, I came to recognize that the notion of it being democratic, not in the political sense, but but universal, is certainly is certainly wrong. Um, as you were talking, though, it also reminded me of Thomas Jefferson's sort of ideal of a university, which eventually came to be embodied in the University of Virginia at Charlottesville. Um, of course, he laid out his plans very uh, minutely and uh, meticulously in his notes, in his letters. Uh, he wanted very specific things, most of which he was able to 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 get uh, one way or another. But more than anything, he he wanted the best and the brightest to attend his school, like the the natural aristocracy, as he might call it, or as Aristotle might call it. Um, do you think that this idea of you know the the a natural aristocracy among the the young men and women of the country coming from all parts of the nation at that time the young nation to congregate at this new institute of learning do you think that idea is is just antiquated yes but maybe antithetical to the current um, American idea? Well, it's hard to separate right. I mean, so when we talk about what the Jeffersonian ideal is, we really have to drill down what that actually meant to Thomas Jefferson. So he didn't really mean a natural aristocracy because obviously the smartest black kid wasn't welcome at the University of Virginia. And, you know, the University of Virginia, though it's an aesthetically beautiful place and I'm sure has educated many, uh, you know, extremely intelligent young men and women, 
um, you know, is is inequitable in the extreme. Uh, the University of Virginia actively courts legacies. So like most of the other elite colleges do sort of a hold your nose, like we know we really shouldn't be doing legacy preference, but we claim that it's essential for institutional interests. Uh, the University of Virginia actually has a legacy scholarship program. And, you know, the University of Virginia's um, median income, I can check this, but I think it's on the order of uh, the mean is over half a million dollars. The median is over $200,000. So the notion that the University of Virginia is egalitarian in any meaningful sense is silly now and was actually not even legally possible when Jefferson founded the institution. Now, you know, do the words resonate with me? Sure. I mean, you know, there are lots of words that Thomas Jefferson uttered um, that have great meaning with me that I also understand in historical context were, you know, the opposite of what they practiced. I mean, he didn't really think that all men were created equal. So the, the flowery rhetoric, those intoxicating aromas of Jefferson don't quite uh, overwhelm you. They don't, they don't quite sweep you away as they oftentimes do to me. I'm a lot more interested in actions than words. Yeah, I can, I can understand that fully. Mm -hmm. uh, so I want to ask you if the brand has in some ways lost its, lost its burnish. So in your book, of course, uh, you focus your attention and uh, no small part of your ire on the Ivy Plus schools, those schools you know, among whom we number the, uh, you know, the Princeton, the Yale, the Harvard, those traditional Ivy League schools, and some of those that are that are Ivy adjacent, right? So Stanford and the MIT and those uh, sorts of institutions. Um, but it seems to be the case increasingly that students and parents are more interested in the prestige than the education. I think that's quite indisputable at this point. Uh, I think above all, they want the brand. They want to wear Stanford the way, the way they wear Lululemon, or they want to, uh, you know, uh, demonstrate a Harvard degree they want, the way they want to uh, reveal a Rolex watch. Uh, so my question is whether or not those brands taken as brands have in some ways sully themselves. Like take Stanford as a, as a perfect example. I mean, this was the, the university home to none other than Elizabeth Holmes, right? The, the sort of charlatan creator of Theranos, the company into which so many billions were invested and that ultimately failed. It, it was the home to Sam Bankman Freed and it's the institution at which both of his parents, I think still currently teach in the, in the law school. Uh, it, it was its president, Mark, uh, um, and I apologize. That's your Levine, yeah. Yeah, Levine is alleged to have falsified data in a scientific report from years past. And most recently, it's the site where Judge Duncan uh, was shouted down um, by an unruly mob. It's difficult to call it anything but, which yielded uh, only to the condescending pontifications of the, the diversity, equity, and inclusion czar. So it, it seems to me that's taking one example. Yale Law School has, has really um, um, demonstrated itself with no more decency, I would say, than uh, its competitor, Stanford. Uh, so these reputations, I think, are, are, are sullied to a great extent. So my question to you is, 
have these brands in some ways lost their burnish? And do you think that will affect people's opinions and whether or not they want to send their children and more importantly, perhaps their uh, alumni dollars to these institutions? Okay. Um, I mean, I'm good. You said, a, you said a lot. So, um, my direct answer to your question is I, okay. In the court of public opinion, uh, I don't think the, these brands are even slightly diminished. Uh, and I think the Chetty and Friedman data shows how economically, um, advantageous these degrees are. And, um, you know, as you know, I talk in the book about how they're basically the exclusive promoter of a certain type of kind of top top end mobility and access to agenda setting elite professions like investment banking and management consulting. Um, Supreme, I think basically every Supreme Court clerk has gone to one of seven colleges. Um, so I think that's why it's correct um, to focus our attention on these schools, even though Ivy League or Ivy Plus, Ivy adjacent, as you said, graduates have voiced Stanford would bristle at that if they heard it. Um, if Ivy adjacent colleges, um, even though they graduate a small fraction of people, they're very, very, they're disproportionately influential. And that's why equitable access matters. Um, if I had the sense that they were trending downward, I don't think I would have written that book. Um, but I, I, I think that the this is going to be the the status quo will remain for some time. Um, you said, now I'm very, very close to my heart, and I'm completely conversant slash fluent in each of the episodes that you've spoken, of, that you referenced. Um, I am first and foremost, I mean, you know, my identifications, um, I do this with my class. I might have put American in my top 10, you know, 25 years ago, uh, not super invested in my identity as Amer an American. I'm a father, I'm an educator, I'm a civil libertarian. So I'm 100% with you on the Judge Duncan incident. Um, I, I watched a tape, um, you know, the dean in saying, is the juice worth the squeeze? Well, yeah, that's, that's what free speech is about, is, you know, you have to listen to things with which you disagree. Um, well, actually, you don't have to listen. Of course, the, the simple answer in all of these things is if you didn't want to go hear Judge Duncan speak, just don't go or hold a sign outside. It's astonishing that precisely people, yeah. uh, that people feel they have a right to attend and shout down and be outraged if they are even slightly challenged. Um, and, I, you know, um, so I'm a huge, you've probably read it. I know you're, you're, you're obviously super well read, The Coddling of the American Mind. Um, actually, Greg Lukianoff sent me the nicest. He tweeted about my book and he we subsequently emailed and he's like, oh, I was worried you you wouldn't like it. Like if I liked it, I'm like, no, it's like my favorite book of the past 10 years. So I'm totally with you about uh, I'm very much kind of anti the mantra of safe spaces. And I, I don't think college should be a safe space. College should be an intellectually challenging space. But I don't think these colleges have paid a massive price in that. But I will relate it to the subject of our conversation. I don't think they've paid a massive price for being antithetical to speech because they've already alienated so many of the people 
that would be alienated by their action in this space. So, you know, I, I do fault, <laughs> I mean, I, I cast a lot of fault in their direction, but I hold them partially accountable for the mistrust of elites that exists in the United States today. And, you know, I always say, well, I don't mistrust the New York Times. That's not to say that I agree with everything that's written or that journalists don't make mistakes. But I did go to college with like four people that are on the masthead. So I've at least interacted with them. So I know that by and large, they're honorable, honorable people and they have journalistic stand ethics. And look, if you've never met anybody who's gone on to be a professional journalist and you don't have access to going to a college that's going to prepare somebody to, you know, write for the New York Times, why should you have any trust in the elites? But, you know, woke liberals aren't going to care so much about, you know, um, silencing Judge Do Duncan or the Yale, or the Yale Law School stories equally terrible. Um, so I don't think that's the reason they're paying a price, though. I'm happy to talk further about it. I completely on the same page as you. I think it's, it's, uh, it's antithetical to, I mean, a university is first and foremost, a forum for free expression. And, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I agree uh, entirely with what you said, a few things on which I'd like to uh, expand there <laughs> first and foremost. Well, I want to ask you about your non-identification with, with America. I think that would be of interest. But but maybe we can shelve that. I want to go back to that. Just, just, let me clarify. I wouldn't sure. say I don't identify myself as an American. I wouldn't list it as among my proudest identifications, whereas I would have. I'm I'm uncertain. Um, You're sort of like a, like a Diogenes, a cosmopolitan, right? <laughs> a citizen of the world. If no, you it's, it's that, that's, that's a more honorable framing than I mean it. I, I'm worried. I, 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 I'm worried about, I, I used to about see, what? I used to see, Amer I'm not, I'm worried about the American commitment to the rule of law. Um, and, um, so I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure that democracy survives. Um, so let's take a very controversial and recent example to America's commitment to the rule of law. Just today, or maybe it was yesterday, there was the announcement that president or former president Trump would be indicted. Now, you don't have to get into the, all the politics of that, but pertaining to the rule of law in that case, what are your general thoughts as a scholar in this field, as as a not a resident of New York, but at least uh, someone who works in that state? I lived there for I've I've lived there basically my whole life, except for the past year. Um, where do you live now? New Jersey. Don't say it shamefacedly. You have to be proud of the uh, <laughs> Jersey affiliation. Do I? Um, well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, as a lawyer, the charge against Trump has the complication of he's clearly guilty of falsification of business records, which is a misdemeanor offense in New York unless committed in perpetration of a in, in furtherance of a felony and so they're they now will see what the when the indictment is unsealed what predicate charge they've linked it to but i presume it's going to be if some type of federal campaign violation um not a hundred percent not a hundred percent sure that that conviction will survive on appeal yeah, and I've heard it said that the statute of limitations for this sort of misdemeanor or crime is 
um, rather rather narrow and that it may have been exceeded in this case? Uh, I don't, he, the statute of limitations is told for people who are um, outside of the state. So I think they'll survive on that. Um, you know, of the other charges against Trump, um, the election interference in Georgia is clearly more serious and the obstruction of justice charges are much more serious. So I wish just from a kind of perception of the rule of law standpoint that those charges had preceded this one and that those were, this was seen as sort of attack on. And if the net of this is two years hence or whatever, that this is the only charge against him, that'll be unfortunate. Second thing I'll say though is, I believe that the truth is the opposite of what Republicans have said over the past day or so. Trump is not being indicted because he's the former president. The only reason he wouldn't have been indicted is because he was the former president. Um, I, I mean, you know, the, it's 100% certain on falsification of business records. And that is a crime that's routinely pursued in the district attorney's office. I think that's an important um, fact. Um, you know, and then kind of the overall rule of law. You know, I think what's tough to listen to is is people say, oh, well, you know, this is exactly what happens in third world countries. So, of course, Trump, you know, campaigned in 2016 on a locker up, which was advocacy of sort of lawless prosecution against a direct political opponent. What Alvin Bragg is not. Donald Trump's political opponent in any sense of the word that I understand. And every Democrat, including, you know, those he loathed the most, including Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi, have all said what anybody would say, which is that um, the process needs to work itself out. And so he'll, he's, he'll be entitled to due process and, um, you know, a jury will render its decision. Um, I heard, I was listening to CNN. Do you, before. That, do you think that decision is almost uh, foreordained given the fact that it will be in the state of New York? No. I mean, you know, do I think you may, do I think, yeah, do I think you can get a fair jury trial? Like, do I think you can find 12 people? Yeah, sure. I mean, selecting a jury will be complicated in his case, no doubt, but there are plenty of, you know, He's got 35% of Americans who will vote for him no matter what. That number's lower in New York. He's got some percentage of people who detest him. But, you know, even if there's just 15% of people and smaller in New York, that's a lot of people. So they'll just go through a lot of jurors until they find people that say they can be fair and impartial. And, you know, the evidentiary record here is going to be overwhelming. I mean, if it's fait accompli, it's only by virtue of the weight of the evidence, not by virtue of there being any, there's no way to fix something like this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and assuming that there may have been, a, I, I almost uh, hesitate to say the word, but a little bit of coordination between states. This could sound a little conspiratorial, but let me just- I, 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 Yeah, yeah, I'll listen, but I, I there's no, yeah, I don't, I'm I don't even think it's possible. I'm, I'm so just sorry. thinking, it, um, do you think it was strategically inept from a political, purely political perspective to break the ice, so to say, so to speak, with this case? Because like you said, I agree, the cases in Georgia, right, and the, and the obstruction cases are, are much stronger, I think, on the merits. 
this one seems quite flimsy and I think a lot of people look at it and they, they think it's quite repugnant that a man who was just recently married and uh, with, a, with a pregnant wife at home was having affairs with multiple porn stars and then paying at least one of them $130,000, right, for her silence. But they, they look at that and they say, okay, well, it happened, you know, however, 17 years ago, however many years ago it was, and that it's quite trivial comparatively. And they, of course, look at all the other peccadillos and worse of, of other politicians, <laughs> of which there is no shortage, uh, you know, and I don't think that that makes as strong an argument. So do you think that they were a little bit uh, premature in their fire? They should have maybe held back until these stronger cases could have brought, been brought forth. How, how would you, uh, if, you know, uh, approach this if you were sort of manipulating the world? Well, that's a different question. I mean, I think the fact that they that, that they're sequenced in the way they are is definitive proof that there is no conspiracy because if they, there was some coordination, there's no way that this would have one would have gone first. And I've never heard it. I mean, you just have to think about what the consequences would be. Um, you know, suppose that um, Alvin Bragg had coordinated with the uh, the Georgia District Attorney's name is escaping me now. I mean, if how would he know in advance that she'd even that she wouldn't publicize that call immediately? It's it's just too too risky. Okay, you could say the same thing about. Trump calling but an existential <laughs> threat to the republic. Yeah, I, I think, think some would argue that those risks are worth the taking. No, um, uh, I wouldn't perceive if I were the either district attorney that the republic depended on sequencing these prosecutions. Um, it's also you know prosecutors have a very strong ethical framework. Um, and my experience are really faithful to that. Um, you know, do I think, uh, I told you which offenses I think are the most aggravated. I mean, I think the destruction of, you know, the classified documents and the obstruction of justice and the election interference cases are significantly more aggravated than this one. But I just don't think there's any mechanism for a local district attorney to really coordinate to sequence, excuse me, things with somebody else. Hmm. And if you could uh, forecast how this plays out very briefly, what do you think happens? Well, how far are we forecasting? You mean just the New York case? Or yeah. what happens if I had any idea what was going to happen in America? I mean, I was, to autumn, to autumn of 2024. No, I don't want you to, <laughs> to hypothesize about America's future, although perhaps the two are linked, Trump's and America's. But, but, but how do you see you know, this case? And I don't mean to, 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 um, to talk about this at it's any fine. rate. I like, but, I'm interested in it. Yeah. I mean, he's, um, he's, he's going to be convicted of the misdemeanor charge. He's going to be convicted. Um, I don't believe he will be sentenced to any jail time, or any prison time for this offense. Uh, I believe he'll be indicted also in Georgia. That's a much more serious question. And I think it's 50-50 whether he's indicted by the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice has a very strong policy against, non uh, against election interference, which they might uh, interpret to apply to this situation. So I, I guess the question, my, my yeah. question is, uh, does a presidential candidate 
twice, perhaps thrice indicted, perhaps once convicted, does he stand a better chance of capturing the Republican primary and then winning the presidency in 2024? It's a conversation my father and I had just a few nights ago. And um, I think I can disclose here to you that I am no great fan of his uh, President Trump's my father is a is a darling of a man uh, <laughs> whom I love unconditionally, but uh, I think those who would like to see a more moral, stronger, conservative candidate arise in that party, uh, they should be somewhat ang anxious about the prospect of Trump, you know, gathering these indictments. Um, and growing stronger because of them in the primary and then advancing to the election where he will very likely, according to all polls early on in this, in this stage, lose. So your thoughts on that? Uh, I don't think it's going to materially affect the election. Uh, I think his narrative, you know, if he was running as a law and order, a squeaky clean by the book guy, um, that would... You know, this would be really incompatible with that in in a way that, you know, the email accusation was very damaging to Hillary, right? I mean, because she's presenting as a totally different type of candidate. I don't think he's going to pay any significant political price for this. Uh, you know, I just want to add, I mean, he 100% he should have been impeached for the January, for the, the second impeachment, right? He should have been impeached the first time. I could understand. Should have been con convicted. Convict he should have been convicted. Yeah. I could understand some people seeing that as a bit of political overreach, although I don't think it was. But the second impeachment is quintessentially, right, an abuse of power. Um, and, you know, even many of his core Republican supporters felt that he should have been convicted of that. That was the most aggravated thing. That was the most aggravated behavior was, you know, a, a sitting president not calling for a peaceful transition of power. That's astonishing. Yeah, and I think a lot of sober-minded Republicans uh, did and, and will agree with you uh, on, on that matter. I, I want to shift just briefly, sort of, back, I, I, because I fear that we could fall into the Trumpian uh, abyss for for some time now, and I, I, I want to, I want to avoid that. But because of the freshness of that news and, and the relevance to to our conversation, I thought it worth I thought it worth bringing up. But I want to go back to my point about the brand losing its burnish. You say that it really hasn't, um, and I grant you. I think by and large it has not. But uh, in your book, you quote the late and in some circles great Antonin Scalia, <laughs> no doubt a hero of yours, who said unembarrassingly before a crowd of students at a you can't make a silk's purse out of a sow's ear no, you can't a, make a sow's ear out of a silk purse out of a silk yeah. purse precisely that that he only would select clerks from the top law schools in the country those seven to, to which you made mention so it's rather impolite if not untruthful thing to say he was quite candid in in his uh, treatment of these of these students um, so we we fast forward to the honorable judge james ho who currently serves on the Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit and is a conservative appointed by President Trump. And in an address to the Federalist Society, he asserted that he'll no longer be hiring clerks from Yale Law School. He mentioned Yale specifically after one of their incidents a few months ago. 
a school at which, in his words, cancellations and disruptions seem to occur with special frequency. Now, he encouraged his fellow jurists to do the same. Now, you talk about downward and upward mobility as it pertains to class. What about the potential descent? And I know this is similar to the question I asked earlier, but the potential descent of a once prestigious university like Yale due to the behavior of its students, faculty, and administrators. Like, do you think that judges like Judge Ho and other professionals in those industries of which you made mention, finance, and industry, and tech, do you think that they'll begin following Judge Ho's example and refusing to take on what they perceive to be, by dint of their um, educational affiliation, troublesome employees? I don't think it's going to be a major trend. And I think all of the, you know, we can look them up, but, you know, Ted Cruz obviously went to Harvard Law School and Josh Hawley went to Yale, I think, went to Yale or Harvard. Um, I think Harvard, but you, you might be right. Maybe Yale undergrad, then Harvard. Anyway, all my point is they're going to send their kids to Harvard and Yale if they can, if they can get them in. And so I guess, things. And, and while I was reading your book, again, that I encourage everyone to purchase, I think this was one of the one of the one of the signals that was that was blaring in the back of my mind you know i i could follow everything that you were saying i understand the the exacerbation of inequality because of the, the selective processes and the in the legacy and um other sort of uh, nefarious and insidious techniques that they're utilizing there at these universities but something inside me kept saying that it will change because these schools are in some ways self-destructing now not to the extent that they'll you know be in ruins come tomorrow but they a, t a certain tipping point is approaching if we haven't hit it already and i think that's maybe one point at which we diverge uh, maybe in a strange way i'm a little bit more hopeful that uh, professionals will begin to uh, cease hiring these these students with whom they know that they're going to have a great deal of trouble based on the way in which they, they went about their studies and the way in which they were treated by administrators and go to different schools with better reputations, uh, schools that are training industrious, young, hardworking people like, like your students at CUNY or, or you know, maybe at a conservative college, right, of, of which there are now quite a few that are springing up and becoming much more selective, I think, of Hillsdale College and, 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 and others like it, St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas. Uh, so what do you think? Could I, could I maybe <laughs> uh, persuade you to come over to my more optimistic side where we, where we see uh, something of a diminution in the, in this the esteem that these institutions once carried well I, i'm not entirely pessimistic um but for a different reason than you are um I, these universities are all populated by people that understand and believe the core of my argument they understand these institutions are fundamentally inequitable and they share the political value that promotion of upward mobility is in back to your original question, they, they share the idealized notion of the university. So you have this kind of weird tension that the schools don't reflect the values of their 
constituent faculty and administrators, right? And they're all very liberal, but the schools are conservative in, in the traditional sense. I mean, what I'm hearing from you is you're very frustrated with um, kind of culture police, thought intolerance, and I'm with you on that. Um, I'm not thinking that that's gonna lead to their downfall. Um, in terms of the rise of, I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at, just as a, you know, I'm an empiricist, it's in my top 10, self-descriptions you know more and more people apply their endowments grow exponentially but like acceleratingly ex exponentially um and i don't see any evidence you know when goldman sachs goes to interview with uh, thomas aquinas or wherever or hillsdale um then i'll i'll take notice of that but you know they're not going there uh they're not going to cuny they're just going to go to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Penn, and you know whatever, and just Wharton at Penn. And um, so I'm not optimistic about that. Um, I think if there's if there's change, it's going to have to be that as students, somewhat as there's greater diversity, because there is marginally greater socioeconomic and race diversity, that those students have to start to advocate for change. And I, I do think that there's going to be government, um, increasing government regulation. I mean, that's part of the equation. Um, and I I'll, I'll tell you something that you'll read about and hopefully over the next whatever. So a uh, friend, colleague of mine and I, the guy, um, Simon Cataldo, in my book, I tell the story of a guy who founded Harlem Lacrosse. The joke is he doubled, single-handedly doubled um, representat black representation in lacrosse used to be 1% and now it's 2%. Um, so Simon's now a uh, state representative in Massachusetts and he's like, oh, I'd like to uh, introduce legislation along the lines you outlined in the book. So a colleague of mine and I uh, draft, helped him draft a bill, which he's now introduced and we're gonna roll it out shortly that would uh, impose a public service fee in Massachusetts on any college that uh, practices legacy um, binding early admission or donor preference and it, it's a sliding scale um, based on endowment per student in harvard's case it would be 102 million dollars per year and all of that money goes to community colleges and their students and and there's going to be increasing demands on elite colleges to diversify or well let's say this i mean trump imposed the question is whether the challenge or the government regulation of elite colleges is going to come from the left or the right. So Trump imposed a 1.6% excise tax on elite colleges, but that money just went into the general fund. Um, you know, it would be way better to, to tax them and incentivize or incentivize them to actually diversify their class. Yeah. And you, you make a, a few really good points there. And, and one is, the criticism from the left and the right. I want to get to that in a moment, but first we have to talk a little bit about lacrosse, a sport with which I must say I'm not especially familiar. Uh, you know, it was sort of a, a marginal sport in high school, and I know that it's popular at a few universities. Uh, I never really, I was never really drawn to it for whatever reason, but it is nonetheless a sport upon which you uh, empty no small portion of your of your score. And I'm assuming you're not. <laughs> I have no beef with, with lacrosse. On the weekends. 
It's not, but it's not the, it's not the game. I don't care. So tell me, I know, I know I'm being a little bit. And I like, I like golf and I heap scoring on golf too, as a college, uh, as a pastor. So tell me, tell tell me and our, and our listeners, of course, uh, (laughs) what is it about lacrosse that's especially distasteful? Well, many of them are distasteful. I liked, um, I thought Simon's story was very interesting to tell. So the book is always framed around stories of students or kind of do-gooders in this space. So the story of Harlem lacrosse is really fun. He's he's doing Teach for America at a school in Harlem, and he's basically ready to quit. And then he has the idea of teaching his kids lacrosse, and he ends up founding a nonprofit which has thousands of helps thousands of students and is basically the best, the biggest promoter of opportunity for socioeconomically disadvantaged students in the country for lacrosse. You know, lacrosse is kind of a perfect storm of things that will really annoy somebody with my value system. I mean, first of all, it's a, you know, it's a game that's indigenous to America that white people co-opted and co-opted in every sense. So, you know, they, they anglicized the rules and then, you know, they Frenchified the name, Frenchified the name. Right. And, uh, but don't you don't, isn't there something a bit, um, warming about that? We Frenchify the name, we Anglicize the rules, we Americanize the, the spirit. <laughs> I don't really care about that. If, you know, 13% of the kids who played um, who played uh, lacrosse at Johns Hopkins were indigenous, uh, you know, North Americans, uh, I would feel great if it was actually a promoter of access for Native Americans and the first peoples of Canada, then I would love lacrosse. Um, but in fact, it's, you know, almost exclusively played by rich white kids. Um, and I just don't understand, I mean, to what you said, you know, how many people are watching professional lacrosse in the United States? Nobody's tuning in on Saturday to watch lacrosse. So I don't really, nobody's tuning in to watch college lacrosse or a handful of people. Um, so I, I don't understand why colleges make these massive investments of resources and they shape society. I mean, uh, Lacrosse was very much on my mind because in the community, the community we used to live in was, I'm not exaggerating, defined around lacrosse. Um, lacrosse was the sport. Every kid my son went to, uh, every kid my son went to high school with, basically they played lacrosse almost like professionally from, you know, 10 years old on. If they played other sports, they were adjacent to lacrosse um you know it was a way of keeping them in shape for it they all had coaches they all played on club teams and um you know somehow european universities get by with club sports systems right i'm not against lacrosse god bless harvard and yale want to have club lacrosse teams i have no problem with that but they want to spend a few million dollars to run the program and on their coach and that creates incentives for rich white people to move out of the city to the suburbs where they can get their kid access to a good lacrosse team you know now i have beef with it because now it's shaping in america in a very segregatory way that issue of sport appropriation is sort of a sort of a tricky one i i i'm i'm not sure exactly where i come down on it to be completely frank because you mentioned you mentioned the fact that no one We'll be watching the 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 World Lacrosse Championships tomorrow, uh, the first of April. But everyone most certainly will be watching the two Final Four basketball games, which is a sport predominantly played and and to a, to an excellent level by 
by black individuals. So could you not make the same argument that well, black people are appropriating a sport created of, I, I don't know the exact original uh, founder of basketball, Spalding comes to mind. I, there is one man whose name James is- Na James Naismith. Yes, yes, that, I've, I'll be yeah, ridiculed for not remembering that. Um, uh, like I said, I'm a little bit- um, Well, you're pulling something out of the- I'm not focusing on the cultural misappropriation. I don't really care that white people, I mean, whatever, uh, you know, I, I play golf, which is a Scottish Irish sport. Um, you know what? That doesn't make any difference to me. I don't have any problem with white pe people playing golf. Uh, certainly have no problem with black people playing basketball. That's irrelevant to me. I, my only investment in these are when they become pathways of access to college. So you know, Johns Hopkins is. Uh, you want to do something fun? Google Google the image of the Johns Hopkins lacrosse team. I mean, it, it's 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 laughable. So these colleges are, you know, the, these lacrosse teams or whatever, 20, 25 players. Well, then there's a feeder program, right? That's the varsity team. So they'll have a JV team. So you're talking, okay, 12 spots per team per class. Now you may say that's not very much. Well, Harvard and Yale have something on the order of 36 teams. Harvard and Yale are sort of biggish, but you go to a Division three school like, say, Williams, one third of the athletes are recruit. One third of the people on campus are recruited athletes. One third of our admissions bucket are these sports. Okay, now what are the sports? So you know, basketball, relatively speaking, is egalitarian. You need to be able to afford a pair of shoes, and um, you know, everybody has a shot. People do not have a shot with lacrosse. Um, lacrosse, and I tell the story in the book, as recruitment has moved kind of earlier and earlier, the only way to get noticed is to play club lacrosse. And the only way you can pay club, play, uh, play club lacrosse is to pay. That's a tongue twister. Um, many of these sports are extraordinarily expensive to play. Crew, uh, skiing, golf, fencing. Um, so you look at the mix, how many of these sports are sort of egalitarian and open to all? Well, basketball's pretty good. Football's pretty good. And everything else is, is pretty hard for people of ordinary means to pay. Play. <laughs> I, will, I will say you've, you forced me to reconsider this, this point. And I, that's the job of an author and of a scholar <laughs> and of a professor. Because upon reading it, I'm thinking, well, Let's see. Well, let's see what happened in basketball and in football, where you have disproportionate play, uh, numbers of players of of um, uh, who are black, you know, doing marvelously in these sports. And I think that's a great thing. It means that the best, the creme de la creme, they are rising to the top and they are performing unbelievably. And I, I applaud their efforts and and all the success and all the and all the money they stand to make. Uh, and I think to myself, well. Could it not be that black Americans just really aren't all that interested in lacrosse? Now I know I know your argument is that you know there are some institutional or many many institutional barriers to their entry into the sport. You spoke of you spoke of many of them or all of them, um, but you know just the other day in anticipation of this interview of this conversation, I should say I, I spoke with a few black co colleagues, um, Emmanuel, who played. Uh, 
football at Colgate of University, I think up in up in New York. And you know, lacrosse is just not interesting to him. Now he is an individual, that's fine, just as lacrosse isn't really interesting to me. Uh, how much do you attribute this to simple personal preference or lack of preference for a sport? But I think you're asking the wrong question. I mean, if we were, uh, respectfully, <laughs> if if we were sitting here and we were at, you know, the governing bodies of lacrosse, and I'm like, oh, we're worried about diminishing participation in the way that golf and baseball have to worry about attracting young people to the sport. Well, then this is the right question to ask. Why aren't young black athletes playing lacrosse? Is it because they can't afford it or is it because they don't like the game? Great question. Has no interest to me whatsoever. I mean, I'm a sports fan, so it interests me. But in this context, has no interest to me whatsoever. The relevant question is, what are we choosing to invest in as academic institutions? And when you go back to your initial question to me, which is about the definition of the university, I didn't hear good downhill skiing team as part of that. That part of the university is to bring people together who excel at a set of niche sports and making sure that we go out into the world and we're really, really good at squash. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, I, at least I understand if they invest in building a good orchestra, I get that. Yeah, though that is seldom done. Yeah. And I, I don't think that, uh, Newman was particularly keen of, uh, of downhill skiing nor Jefferson in. Uh, yeah, but in, no, I mean, you're yeah. right. They don't recruit, they don't recruit to the orchestra. They do exactly, but they have a great orchestra and you know why but that all that proves is just let them let them admit really smart, motivated people who will come with their diversity of talents. And I'm guessing those people, many of those people will be good at sports and just like many of those people are wonderful music performers. You don't have to organize the institution and thereby creating incentives for parents to shape their lives accordingly. Yeah, no, and that point is well taken. Uh, and and you, I should say that you're uh, very clear about that in the book. But this is just my mind, sort of working in different ways and and, and trying to formulate some some questions that that might be uh, that might push a little bit in a few different directions. Uh, but no, overall, I think you're absolutely right. Now you talk about the investments in the sports, and and again, by and large, I I tend to agree. Uh, the readers will be startled to learn just how few universities actually are able to turn a profit uh, by their sports by their uh, television packages and their advertisements and their boosters. I mean, you think when you turn on the television every weekend and you see these, you know, your, your favorite hometown university, it's West Virginia University playing Rutgers. And you think, wow, look at the, look at the beautiful stadium and these well-paid coaches and these, these elegant Nike uniforms and the cheer, you know, the whole, the whole scenery is amazing, but there may be only, as you said, about 25 universities that are truly profitable. Yeah, these are Texas, this is Alabama, these are the, the SEC schools, the Big 12, you know, the, the ACC, the real, real heavy hitters in this, in this place, in this space. Uh, so I do think that that is one area where there is a grave misallocation of resources and of students, money and also the taxpayers money because you know, we, I mentioned University of Florida. I'm a Florida resident now and that's the state university. So there's something toward which my taxes go. Uh, but what about administrative bloat? That's something I noticed that was unmentioned in your work. And, and 
I'm sure purposefully, and maybe it's not exactly relevant immediately to your argument, but this is something I think with which a lot of faculty uh, are across the nation in both private universities and public universities are dealing. At some universities, I've read that the ratio of administrators to students is one to one, <laughs> which is extraordinary. And a lot of the administrator salaries, I probably shouldn't say this to you, though you may know it, are exceeding those of the of the staff, of those who are trained through years of study and practice, such as you as a lawyer, um, or such as you have as a lawyer, have undergone. So uh, what are your opinions about this phenomenon of administrative bloat? And do you think that this is something that needs to be addressed along with legacy uh, admissions and, and profligate sport programs? Well, I mean, I, had, I think I have one sentence in the book about it, and I'm worried it may have gotten caught. But I did note that I think over the past two decades, the number of administrators or the ratio, as you describe it, has quintupled. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm trying to stay in my lane, which is, you know, talking about elite, talking about elite colleges, and, and you know, wealthy suburbs as drivers of of inequity and segregation. Well, let me give but, you the opportunity to no, I'll, I'll, I'll answer it and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but as a, I mean, I'm, I've been at a, I've been at CUNY for 24 years. I've spent my whole life. Both of my parents are public school educators, and what you say. It deeply resonates with me, and it's very troubling. Um, I don't understand it um, completely, where we just went through an accreditation process at John Jay. So colleges are required um, to be eligible for federal funding to go through an accreditation process every 10 years. Oh my God, you would cry. So we generate, I don't know, a book, 150 page document that has no relevance to any student or professor's life. The administrators may think about it, but I've sat through, oh my God, countless faculty meetings over the years. And you know, the number of times I've heard somebody say, oh, well, we need to abide by what we agreed to in this report is close to zero. The accrediting, accrediting commission sent in Oh my God, five people. There were half a dozen administrators. I'm the chairperson of my department, so I sat there. There were half a dozen administrators there, some of whom I had never met before. Then faculty are also given release time. So there were three faculty members whose basically full-time job had transformed, transmogrified into working on this um on this report. And um you know, it's like, okay, think about, you know, say that costs two or three million dollars to prepare in its totality. That's a massive amount of money. That's um, free tuition for what, 2,000 students? Mm, more. Now, I'm not excusing the culpability of legacy admissions nor uh, these sports programs, but do you think that? a greater focus should be placed on the administration in this situation because that's just a, a sink pit of money right there and you can only uh, multiply that by almost orders of magnitude as you get you know away from Cooney and into some of the other universities that we discussed 
So you know, I'm I'm unsympathetic to that argument um, because in the case of I mean, I'm really differentiating, and I try to do this in the book. I'm really differentiating the couple of dozen colleges that have endowments of greater than two billion dollars from every other school. So there might be, you know, college hundredth rank college, which merely has an endowment of six hundred million dollars, and they might you might then be saying, oh, our trade-off is hiring this administrator versus letting in this additional needy kid. Okay. But I don't really think that's the trade-off that Harvard and Yale face. And in fact, you know, as, as you know, I discuss in the book and lots of people observe, none of these colleges have increased capacity in ages. So Harvard's class is the same size as I went and as what that was the same size as it was 20 years before then. And so it's really a zero sum game who they're, they're going to, you know, allow into these finite number of spots. And I don't think that's a function of money. So I just don't have them on the same continuum. I think they're independent. You know, the, the, the administrator, administrative bloat is, is very lamentable. But I could imagine Harvard and Yale cutting the number of administrators, but still letting in exactly the same people that they're letting in right now. Yeah, and I think... Again, you make this quite clear in your work. It's more of a philosophical issue. Am I, am I mistaken with you? I mean, you're looking at these legacy admissions um, not merely as a matter of dollars and cents. You're looking at it as, as a factor by which inequality is exacerbated. And I think uh, by, my, by the questions I pose to you, I don't want that to be overlooked. No, I, I'm fine with the, uh, the questions are great. I, um, you know, when you say philosophical, well, philosophically, uh, I'm philosophically basically what you asked me in the first question, right? I'm at about a, I'm at, I'm about a uni I believe the universe, the ideal of the university is democratic in the, democratic in the most extensive set of the word of the word. It's democratic in its embracing of pluralistic ideas right? Freedom of thought, freedom of expression, but also opens its door to the broadest range of people to find, you know, capturing diversity in every imaginable sense. So I know if we're excluding poor people, that's really <laughs> anti-democratic. Um, you know, what do I see legacy as? I mean, the truth is legacy is just a rationalization. They, they just want to let in rich people. They, they, they just want to let in who they want to let in and they need to come up with an, a rationalization for that. So legacy is a crappy rationalization, but it's better than, you know, what the truth would be is, well, look, I have lunch with the, uh, you know, the headmaster at Groton, and I got to make sure I let in his 10 kids every year or his job's going to be in jeopardy and I don't want to not get my free lunch. Um, so I don't, I'm not under any delusion that if legacy ended, that that means that socioeconomic diversity would improve at these colleges, but it would make it harder for them to, even harder for them to justify in the court of a public opinion, and I think would put some additional pressure on them to further diversify. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So if they, let me say this, if they were super meritocratic, if they were like, 20% of people come from the bottom quintile and 20% for people from the next to bottom quintile. And then in the top income quintile, they let in a handful of legacies among. So now instead of, you know, the rich, you know, capturing 
uh, whatever you want to say, 1,200 of the 1,600 spots in Harvard's class, if now they were capturing 400, and we're like, we're going to let in a handful of legacies, that would not offend me nearly as much as what they're doing. If it's legacy rich kid versus other rich kid, that's much less offensive than legacy rich kid versus poor kid, which is what it is today. You mentioned just in passing a word on which I want to expand a little bit, and that is meritocratic. Now, in America, I think since our founding, there's been a tension. And I think Tocqueville um, described this most, most eloquently in his works uh, during his travels here, during the Jackson administration. And that is the, the tension between the meritocracy, which, of course, is a word whose coining comes to us only recently, uh, within the past few decades or so, and that more egalitarian uh, spirit, that more equal spirit. So uh, a professor of yours, of whom I'm, I'm also quite fond, uh, Michael Sandel, uh, to whom you make reference in your book, has been especially vocal about the, the tyranny of meritocracy, I think, or the tyranny of merit, I think, as he entitled his last book, which was very uh, widely read and, and well-received. He makes good, good arguments in that book and in subsequent lectures that I've seen, but still something of that tension exists in me, that tension of, of, of the meritocratic and the egalitarian, and the democratic, let's say. Uh, in some ways, I think that meritocratic is just a, a, a newfangled term for aristocratic, which of course has connotations of, of wealth and birth um, mm -hmm. and, and the, the inheritance of sort of undeserved features. Whereas truly, you know, as I mentioned earlier, in the Aristotelian or Jeffersonian sense, this, uh, this aristocracy, this, this aristoi was supposed to include the best. And now, of course, it excluded in Aristotle's time, maybe many slaves and uh, Greek slaves, and in Jefferson's time, many black slaves. Um, but what are your opinions on meritocracy? Do you think that it's a useful term in this day and age? Do you think that it uh, should continue in our just, you know, daily uh, parlance, in our ways in which we, we look at people who are either deserving or undeserving and, and, and whatnot? What are your thoughts about that? Well, uh, first thing, just saying back to the Tocqueville, right, is that everything is sort of needs to be understood in context. So America was egalitarian as compared to France, but not really egalitarian in any sense of the word that we would understand. Um, you know, and meritocracy, meritocratic, again, you get into semantic issues. So... Um, I mean, you know, I grade students all the time and, um, I do give A's and I give B's and C's and D's and I have some sense of giving students, you know, I might say, oh, well, I tried to give you the grade that I thought you deserved. Okay. However, <laughs> it's the way, it's the breadth with which merit, merit is defined in the United States that's really problematic. So first of all, the sense what question might you ask? What merit-related question might you ask in college admissions? So first of all, when we talk about 
merit or desert. I think normally we're talking about moral worthiness or hard work. Well, colleges certainly don't attempt to admit the hardest working students or the most morally virtuous students. Which admittedly could be difficult to, to measure and to gauge. Of course, I'm just saying nobody makes, nobody makes any pretense about that. And then, you know, I think what they would say is, well, we're trying to let in the people that are best prepared to succeed in college, but it's not what they do either, because if they really were going to do that, they wouldn't focus so much on the SAT. Um, they, the SAT is a very poor predictor of college performance. High school GPA is a much, much better, very strong predictor of college performance. And, you know, all of these elite colleges could achieve significant gains in diversity if all they did was take the valedictorian of every high school class in the United States and conduct a lottery among them, because then you'd be picking up the diversity, you know, you'd be picking up all kinds of diversity through geographical diversity. So they don't do that. So I think what I resent the most is constructing a system that doesn't operate on the basis of merit in any sense that we understand, while simultaneously telling students that they are the most deserving of their class there. So if, you know, I always say this, look, if Harvard and Yale and Princeton said, look, we're not, you know, we're not corporations exactly, we're not profit maximizers exactly, but we're status aggrandizers and we're in a race with one another to get to a trillion dollar endowment first and then at the you know they said that at freshman convocation and said to their students look let's be honest here you're not the best and brightest of the united states you're you know some of the best and brightest mostly of the rich and the richest and we've admitted a set of you that serve our institutional interests which include the people that we think are going to ma best make a a fundraising donor base and give us good lacrosse and squash teams. So be humble, everybody. But I never hear be humble. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, with what word might you replace the, the meritocracy? Well, are you asking me that as a prescriptive or a descriptive matter? What do I, are you asking me what I think de it is that we actually do? Descriptive. Or what we should do? What, what, what we actually do is, it, universities let in the students that most serve their institutional interests. They're not letting in the most deserving students. They're using people to further their institutional goals. Um, what should they do? Well, I'll keep going back to your initial question. What does a democratic admissions process look like? Well, I'd let people in based on some demonstrated openness to knowledge and capacity to grow. Yeah. Again, you're sounding more like the idealist, less like the practical man that you uh, declared yourself to be. What did I declare myself the to be? <laughs> I think I'm an idealist. I think <laughs> you should knock, knock empiricism to the 11th spot or the 12th spot on your top 10 list of self-identifications. Um, because, because that's that's sort of that poetic uh, um, um, ideal with which I resonate, no, well, <laughs> but of course I'm I'm not an academic. I'm a downright romantic about college. I mean, I I look, I you know, even when I went to high school with my dad, I was thrilled, and I'm hand to I'm an atheist, but hand to God, still my I I still am thrilled every time I walk into a classroom. I revered Harvard. I I considered myself very lucky to be there. It was such a beautiful place, and you know I. I, I presume you feel this in the book. Uh, 
if I didn't think that these institutions were worthy and capable of doing great things and, and being democratic, I, I wouldn't write it. I mean, I, I didn't write this book, you know, uh, wishing that, uh, <laughs> that British Petroleum, you know, were, would start becoming more democratic. There's no there there, but these institutions have an enormous capacity to do good. Yeah, and uh, I should say that you certainly make that obvious, the, the heartfelt regard that you have for learning, for education, for these higher institutions of education is, is very warmly um, described and sincerely felt by a reader such as myself, uh, whether it be your, the, the relationship that you had with your father as he ascended in the public school setting to, a, to the level of a principal or your own uh, dedication to the same profession in, in a certain, in a, in a different way. Uh, so. So far, I think I've counted maybe th four or five of your top 10 identifications. We have atheist, <laughs> cosmopolitan, empirist, I don't know if atheist is top golfer, 10. <laughs> golfer, golfer top 10. and uh, lover of lacrosse. Are there any more? And, and Yes, lover of lacrosse is <laughs> way up there. Uh, and I, I, should add, uh, I should add to that, um, that impressive list, uh, writer of fiction. So I want to make a, a left turn, and I want you to tell us a little bit more about your your career as a fiction writer. So um, you've written on themes as diverse as time travelers, aliens, and as I mentioned earlier in my prefatory remarks, that Gwen Stefani and the obsessed mathematical geniuses of whose amours she was the inspiration so, um, yeah. tell me a little bit about the the mental agility needed to go from a work like Poison Ivy to 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 you know a two hundred page from a two hundred page work that's that's critical, analytical, empirical, um, and and really sharp tongued to uh, these works of fiction for which uh, or with which you've had some success. Sorry, my dog started barking. Um, well, Dreaming of Funny is really it's kind of a meditation on free will. Um, my novels were all kind of funny and Vonnegut-y, if you like, if you're a Kurt Vonnegut fan. He was one of my heroes. Um, it's an interesting question. In real time, there's no great agility required because I'm not writing a novel and a nonfiction book at the same time. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting right now, I moved since we, we started chatting, but this is basically where I wrote most of Poison Ivy, staring into my kitchen. And, um, you know, it, it takes a lot of discipline and it takes a long time. So I sat at this chair seven days a week for, I don't know, two and a half years, um, minimally three hours a day, sometimes eight or nine or 10. Um, so like I'm completely immersed in that when I'm doing it. And then I go on to the next thing. And so when I'm working on a novel, I'm just completely immersed in the novel. Um, Let me interrupt really quickly. Do you have certain techniques that uh, enhance your focus? I don't mean to say illicit substances, nothing like that, but um, I always find it interesting. I to wouldn't know. be offended. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't think you'd be uh, hesitant to disclose those, but but no, that's not my intention. I mean to say, um, 
do you have a certain writer's technique? Like you said, okay, I sit down for two hours. And of course, you are a rather prodigious writer. I mean, you have, like I said, eight books to your name in total. Um, but do you, you know, work in a certain way? Do you begin with pen on paper? Are you pacing your room, talking into your uh, recorder? Or are you just one of those people who can open up his Word document and right off the bat start getting down ideas and, and gaining that momentum and, and writing? Just tell us a little bit about that process for you personally. Well, I know you do some mindfulness stuff, so I, I'm definitely, um, I mean, I have my own version of that. Um, I'm a runner and a hiker, so I'll be outside. And I was joking with my therapist one time, and I was like, well, I really only have time. I could meditate a half hour a day, or I could run a half hour a day. And he's like, I think you should run. <laughs> but it's it's very meditative for me, right? And I think that's very, very important. And I think sleep is very important. And I'm amazed at how much hard work of thinking just happens when you're asleep and i just wake up and i've just have a problem that's solved um i'm definitely a morning person i'm very structured um so we're talking in the afternoon and i wouldn't have scheduled this for the morning um, i'm working on a, a piece about affirmative action right now um and and i'm i'm completely immersed in it i mean what i'm lucky about well, I don't know if this is lucky, but I, to the extent I have a sort of work philosophy, it's to do what you love. So I loved writing Poison Ivy. Um, I, I'm sure you can feel my connection to my students whose story that I love telling. You can feel, I'm sure, the passion I have for the issue, the love I have for CUNY, the frustration and love I have for Harvard. Um, and so that makes it very easy. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll sit with an idea for a while and then I'll be like, okay, I really, I really want to say something about that. And all of my novels have a core idea. <laughs> one, um, oh, I used to have my books behind me, but what the premise of one where you mentioned aliens is that um, it was when Bush was president, I had the idea that aliens contacted earth and uh, the president was an idiot and screws everything up. So in the book, the president on very flimsy evidence becomes convinced that the aliens are Jewish and this sends things down a kind of path. And of course, didn't Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, yeah. proclaim something similar? Yeah, I, I, I was going to say, you know, you're in retrospect, he seems super savvy. All of this, it's very, very hard to, um, it's very, very hard to uh, create fiction that would be stranger than what we're living through now. You know, I did TV writing too. I've I've written a bunch. I, I worked on a, a show that actually did reasonably well. And and then I, I'm always pretty happy. Like for me, most of my, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm overall like a super happy, optimistic guy. Um, but it, a lot of my stress is just, I just want to, I just like being able to express myself. And I would just like to be able to do the next thing. Like I, I, it's very hard when you're writing that you you just spend a lot of time pitching, and it's funny, you know. You said that I'm successful, and I don't see it that way. But like, and this is uh, so. Uh, I mean, I did get four novels published, and and Q was. If you look, Q has been optioned to be a movie several times, and it was published in some other languages. Right? This all sounds amazing, but you know, probably cumulatively. I don't even want to think about this. I've probably made a total of between two hundred fifty and three hundred thousand dollars writing, and I've written um, 
I've probably worked seven, almost seven days a week for, I would say, 33 years. Yeah. So I worked it out once to about $2 an hour. <laughs> so I just try to only do things that I would do for free. Um, I, I would teach for free. I would write for free. I'm happy to chat with you. I don't want any money for that. And um, I think so long as you, yeah, right. Yeah. I'm coming. Don't, think, check, uh, don't check your Venmo account. There's, there's nothing forthcoming. <laughs> I think that's the secret. I think if you, and you know, that's a luxury. That is a privilege though, too, as I'm, I'm lucky enough that I can do it. I was, a, when I was a lawyer, I didn't feel like I was doing what I loved. So if you're, you know, if you're present and you really love what you're doing, it's, it's pretty easily, but I've never, I've never had any writer's block. I, it's, uh, but I do talk to myself a lot. I don't dictate, but it's very, I don't know if my writing style resonated with you, but for me, it's very rhythmic and musical. And I am very, very invested in the quality of my sentences. Yes. And again, I can attest to that being evident through every line uh, it's it's clear to me that you have a, a very uh, finely tuned writing process mm -hmm. and once i realized that uh, you know you were the author of multiple books to which I'll, I'll be with which i'll be spending some time once we finish uh, this conversation maybe starting with gwen stefani uh, it, you know it, it became even clearer to me uh, um, and I do the same thing, uh, not in, uh, as it regards to writing, but but running. Like I love to be outside, um, and there is something very mindful about that. I don't want you to think just because you're you're exercising, you're not also being incredibly mindful and having those uh, that meditative half hour or meditative hour, whatever it may be, uh, out there in the universe, because it is extraordinarily potent. And um, you know, once you have that use spoke of that rhythmicity, you know, you have that rhythmic breathing, certain pulse that that is just right when your heartbeat is at whatever it may be, 120 or whatever you measure it, you empiricist, I don't measure it. Uh, and, you know, you're in that favorite spot of the neighborhood where it's just a little uphill and, you know, there's a little chill in the air and it's just enough to invigorate your lungs. There's just nothing like that. And I find whenever I'm embarking on any creative endeavor, it's usually like a few miles into that run or as soon as that run is completed that you know that 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 little i don't know match is kindled and that's really when uh, when the work starts coming and, and the yeah, it's a um it's yeah. a it's a re it's a reverie i mean it, when it when it when it goes well i mean i've had moments where like entire like i've just written entire books in my brain in five minutes it's just a flash of insight and you know uh, everything you said resonates with me it's just a flow state and people get so many things wrong about this like you know even just walking is is very can be very meditative but if you put earphones over your head and you're closed off to nature then and you're not observing the world then i don't think your mind can achieve whatever types of brain waves are producing that comfort so have you always had this mental, uh, I don't know, connection with what you're doing physically and, and with the artistic output that then uh, is produced by it? Or do you think, or, or not do you think, or was this something that you deliberately put into practice? Did you have an experience or did you read a book? Was it 
Eckhart Tolle or was it Deepak Chopra? Did you experience somebody who kind of led you to this or nope. did you kind of intuit stumble I upon? Intu I intuited it. I, I have to say, you're, this, this, you're the only person ever to ask, take me down this line of question. I'm, 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 nobody will care what we think about it, but I'm interested to talk about it. I did read Eckhart Tolle much later on. And for me, like the stuff that I've read is just confirming things that I've always believed about the world. And so, uh, you know, I read, I don't know what Buddhism I read at some point, but I was like, oh, well, that's what I believe in. I, I don't know what a Buddhist says. It's like right thought, right? So like I, I try to see the world accurately. Um, and, I, you know, I'll do that. It doesn't even matter. Like I could be having a fight with somebody with I, whom I vehemently disagree. But if they make a fair point, I'll be like, oh, that's a fair point. Mm -hmm. oh, oh, no. Well, you know, they're, you know, like you said, uh, coordination. No, I don't see it that way. Right. And, but that's you're responsive to that because you're you clearly are a practitioner of that. Um, I've always had the same value system. I've never placed value on money. Um, I've always done some version of meditation, explicit meditation or exercise as meditation, depending on how my life was structured. I'm presuming you don't have children. I do not. Yeah. Well, when you have kids, you, you see when you're going to squeeze in, uh, you know, it, 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 that whole equation changes. And so I was like, well, you know, I don't want to be fat and I like running and like, you know, you're making choices. But but what what you said, I've always compartmentalized, uh, segmented tasks. So one of my mantras has always been, you know, like I was a marathon runner. I'm like, eh, you don't run 26 miles. You just run to the next telephone pole 500 times. And it's the same with writing. I can't write 350 pages. I can write, you know, 500 words in a day. And I just do that a lot. Um, so I know that that's, uh, that's now a kind of thought practice. Um, you know, and I think there are a lot of major, major distractions. Um, Marx might talk about his mystifying influences but i mean there's there are things that people care about and they literally have no interest in me i don't care about cars i don't care about clothes i mean i like to like i think i would address more or less like you're dressed neater than i am right now i would wear that level shirt i like to look neat and um just people fall off track i've certainly tried to instill the same values in my kids i value humor greatly yeah, no doubt, or else you wouldn't suffer me very well or very long. Oh. Um, again, again, I think uh, it seems to me that you just sort of have this intuitive, I don't know, sort of cosmic uh, awareness of the now, which is unusual. Uh, is that the case? Like, do you have any, I don't think you mentioned siblings, uh, but do you, do you have any other... Um, relatives who are, who are similar to you in this way and maybe no, from none whatsoever this technique hmm. none whatsoever i will say to my amazement my father revealed to me i mean when i was 45 years old that he had done transcendental meditation his whole life and i'm like but i don't understand when did you do that and i guess he must have gotten up before me and he does it 
But no, my parents, my father is a very ethical man. Uh, not to say that my mother's not, but my, my father is like sort of practicingly decent. Um, but they don't, they never understood. Like I, I, first time I went hiking, I was like, I love this. This is now my favorite thing. Right. And I honestly, my dream trip would be to be like airdropped in the middle of Africa, Alaska. And I have to get my way out. Right. And nobody else in my family really sees it that way. When I said, when I left being a lawyer to go teach, I was like, I want to teach and write. I remember my grandmother, what she said to me, you're out of your mind. I think she may have said, you're fucking more out of your mind. That sounds more like grandma. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I now, I just hit a big threshold. I now, 24 years after I started, make half as much as I made when I left being a lawyer. But I don't understand. I, I actually don't, uh, you know, you say this to me. I mean, you're, you're nodding your head and giving me warm body language. But most people would think I was out of my mind. No, not at all. I think you're. Well, you don't. <laughs> I think I think you're extraordinarily brave and and um, and daring and inspirational in a lot of ways, because I see myself and I won't delve too much into my my story right now, but at a similar juncture where you're you're looking for a fulfillment of that of that purpose, right? So you felt as though there was some sort of calling. Now I know you're professedly an atheist, but it seems to me to be the case that you felt as though there was a a sense that you weren't quite fulfilling your telos, your end, the, the purpose for which you were created or born, or brought into this world. And I think in, indubitably you now are. Uh, let me ask you though a little bit about that. That fact that you're not quite a Buddhist, at least not in you know the proper traditional sense. Uh, you're a declared atheist. In these moments of transcendence or 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 nowness as tolle might say <laughs> with a capital n always uh, do you ever begin to flirt with the notions of a superintending force deity god what have you what do you think i haven't it's it's i wish i wish i did i would find it comforting i do you may you can define you may define this i don't know how to define this i do sense some sort of deep i think of it as deep music in the universe um there's a rhythm there's a rhythm to things i i feel like uh, and i can see you have the same sense of humor that i do that there's an absurdity to things that I think is is deeply funny and that and that's a very core human thing um i mean i could literally laugh at anything um we went to see sarah silverman the other night you know she is yeah sure yeah yeah okay so her first joke her she opens with um i'm gonna tell you an old-fashioned joke is what did the uh what did the jewish mother say to her daughter after seeing her in a Porn and a video of a gangbang. You were the best one. <laughs> All right, so that's just an extraordinary joke. Okay, the opening act was a black woman. She was magnificent. 
and she told a joke and she's like oh i saw, i found out i was mispronouncing somebody and i felt very bad because i want to call them what what they want to be called um and so they weren't a he they were they and i'm really happy to do that just saying though it, it makes me sound like i'm an escaped slave and then she says they coming it's a great joke yeah yeah <laughs> and i'm walking down the stairs and these people behind me are talking about how she came right up to the line and i'm like so you paid money to go to see sarah silverman okay when the title of the tour is itself a reference to her female <laughs> oh, didn't know that and, and i'm like and i'm like and you're sitting there scrutinizing whether or not we've come up to now you think that's funny and i think that's funny and they're sitting there judging funny so i feel something but i don't know what to call it and i wish I, i'm yeah, open there, there might be some mystic inheritance in in black and both the black and jewish populations and and i i was raised jewish and 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 sort of flirting with uh, a return to that religion i've been something of an apostate for the for the past few years but on my own sort of weird spiritual numinous journey but to the point there's this there's this humor that that is i think the child of suffering uh, like a long ethnic history of suffering and i think right. blacks and i think jews especially <laughs> um are possessed by that by that spirit so yeah that's just a, a great combination to have sarah silverman and to have that other young lady uh perform back to back i'm sure was was just you great be, you need to belong to the church of vocabulary because uh the number of people that uh use words that i don't know it's very rare but uh you've used a few is that, that a, a church to which i could recruit you i think that we can i i check yes. off atheism from the list and <laughs> we will in uh, uh, can we, i tell you what you'll, we'll you'll baptize like you into the church of vocabulary you'll like this since we're on religion i um i had written i've written some short stories too so i just put them out myself okay let me, um, let me the, ask you really quickly uh where can these be found of course i'll everything's I'll make, on everything's on amazon okay because i'll, I'll uh, add links of course to all these to all these Thank great you. works in the in the show notes and i'll encourage anyway, it's not the point of the story you're going to get a big laugh in a second so one of the stories is sort of i i used to do stand up and the story is kind of a story a, a version of a, a routine i used to do which is well why if jews why if the elders of Zion existed and Jews controlled like all of the banks and the governments, why have Jews had such a shitty lot throughout history? And it turns out like the elders of Zion are like this really inept organization of old like Borscht Belt comedians. So the title of the short story collection is The Revised Protocols of the Elders of Zion, Stories of Neurotic Obsession. And if you look on my Amazon page and I published posted published this as widely as I could, it's there's a review, it says one store, one star, nothing to do with the actual open design <laughs> of course <laughs> i love i love that so much <laughs> uh, that about sums it up doesn't it <laughs> That's like, have you now have you ever uh backslid <laughs> into comedy <laughs> i i mean it's uh, again your your story is just so so utterly fascinating and i love talking with people like yourself who have been so nimble uh, you know through their lives and will continue to be so dancing between all these different careers and these thoughts and um these um, these ways of being so 
So do you make do you have a plan in the future to to get back onto the stage, the improv stage, and and perform there either in New York or in New Jersey? It's um, an easier easier crowd in New Jersey. You should start there. Well, I don't know what middle aged Jewish man stand up comedy looks like. It's like That's uh, every comedian I've ever seen. That's now like, I now I have to wear reading glasses when I type in. You know the uh, that's uh, Seinfeld. That's that's Louis C.K. That's Louis Black. I mean the uh, the list is endless. We uh, I you know I think the I I think the book is funny. Um, I have I think I bet you laughed a few times when you read it. Is that your wife in the background saying no? It's not. <laughs> no, <laughs> my daughter's best friend, um, and um, I, I'm pretty. Uh, my class is a bit stand y So yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. You are able to bring out that stand up um, spirit in the classroom before an audience, and maybe in the in the courtroom as well. Maybe you you were inhabiting that role in a certain way. But yeah, certainly in your in your even in your more serious work, there is that, it's a more sardonic, biting, yeah. it, but it's there, it's it's palpable. You and, know, uh, I do it 100%, I do it all the time. I heard Bill Maher, and I have to say this is true, Bill Maher was being interviewed, uh, CNN's new format, uh, Anderson Cooper, with, oh no, no, he's, um, uh, he's being interviewed on CNN, Jake Tapper, and Bill Maher says, I could be canceled in a minute. And of course, of course, it's true. So, like one day in class, I mean, I just, I just, there's one kid who's literally the victim in every hypothetical I come up with. I mean, most he dies in the most extreme ways. Um, this one, you know, amazing black girl, but she talks very rarely, and she started to say something, but the biggest talker in the class is this white woman and she says something and I go, no, 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 let the white woman finish first. <laughs> but they all, they, you know, there's a trust. I, they all, I think they all know where I'm coming from and I, I make very significant investments in my students' lives. I mean, I feel like if they, if somebody really wants to learn, I will literally do anything in my power to advance their, their lives. Yeah, and I hope that's deeply felt because as a professor, I would be hmm, anxious, uh, wouldn't even begin to, to, to describe the feeling um, about the, the possibility of being canceled or brought up before a board of administrators, right? To whom you have to argue oh. your case. Uh, so do you feel that anxiety a little bit? It sounds as though you don't, you build that trust with your student body. Oh, I, and again, I you're working. Sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> no, I was just going to say at, at, at uh, the City University, as you describe in your book, you're working and you're teaching to a, a different a, a different population, right? So whereas that joke might <laughs> land you in the in the in the, uh, the the prison, the academic prison at a, at a Harvard, maybe it's it's more acceptable at a at your university. So do you feel at times that? pressure that, that you are ever w walking on eggshells and and how will you respond if ever that does happen because someone like you who has this sardonic wit and this like sort of this inherent irony about life uh, it, it's that needs to be vented that needs to to express itself somehow because again we sort of share that and and if you just keep that stifled for too long yeah <laughs> you're, I can't. Just not, you're just not the same person so i think every every teacher 
feels afraid of that. Probably every teacher at every level right now. And um, actually, what I would most like to write my next book on is cancel culture. Although um, the guy I mentioned, Greg Lukianoff, who did the coddling of the American mind, his new book is the canceling of the American mind. So he may have beaten me to it. I mean, I have tenure and I'm doing it a long time and I have a, a long track record, I think, of helping students. And I think people, most of the people get me. So I'm not, I'm not skating on super thin ice. I think I've, I've built up a foundation, but it's still terrifying. And I had my moment. I, um, it's, uh, it's definitely a cautionary, whatever tale, um, during the pandemic. So before the pandemic, I had a, uh, um, student in my class who wore a MAGA hat and, um, I didn't love the MAGA hat. But I thought about it for myself and I was like, you know, is there any limit? I was like, would I teach a kid who wore a swastika hat into class, right? I was like, I think I would, right? But I wouldn't, it's not my first choice. And so actually he's a very, very smart guy. Um, got a 165 on the LSAT. He's um, got a full scholarship. I think he's gonna end up going to St. John's Law School. And so I talked to him and I was like, hey, what do you want to be? You want to be a redneck conservative or you want to be perceived as a William F. Buckley conservative? So he takes off the hat. Okay. Fast forward, he's at a, um, the honors program has a colloquium. It's online. I'm not present for this event. And he says, I don't get the context. He says, why should I care about Breonna Taylor? And there's pandemonium. <laughs> Three weeks later, a student invites me to speak at a forum on freedom of speech. Okay. And I don't usually draft my remarks, but I did this time. So we're there for two hours. And I talk about, I was like, democracy is hanging on by a thread. What does democracy mean? Why aren't we worried that the military would side with Trump in a coup? It's because they've had the benefit of you know, an education at the academy, what's the foundational value of the academy? And I build up to, look, I know a lot of you are annoyed by what uh, the student said about Breonna Taylor, but, you know, of course, first of all, literally, he asked a question, right? He didn't even really say anything. And so I was like, tell him why he should care about Breonna Taylor, or tell him he's a racist and explain why. He's a big boy. If he's going to say something like that, he has to do it. But I go, we can't, you know, we can't, can't, cast someone out of the community for saying something that, you know, we disagree with. And then, so one of the students recorded 47 seconds of the two hours and they, I didn't even say anything. I didn't even say anything on this clip. Um, they, um, you don't need to, <laughs> they kept saying that I had organized the event and I hadn't organized the event. So like they repeated this like seven times and I smiled because I thought it was funny because it wasn't true. And they sent that to the president and said I was a racist and should be fired. And, you know, what I find terrifying about this is to me, it's, it wasn't, you know, it was a, a student of color who complained about me. And actually, though I disagreed with the claim, I was like, I was happy in a way that a student felt empowered enough to, to say something. But when 
I got into lawyer land and you know, I'm an attorney, so I'm interacting with our Title IX officer and I was like, well, okay, this is my career. What policy am I alleged to have violated? And she sent me two policies and I'm like, well, I didn't sexually harass the student and I, I didn't even take any action. Like I couldn't have discriminated against her. There's no action here, right? I didn't give her a grade. I, I, I didn't even say anything. And then you get into, well, they just feel, you know, it's there you go. Felt, right. And that's then, all you need. That's all you need to do is feel a certain way. Exactly. And then the director of the honors program, you know, my 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 wife's not white. I'm not going to say that to the student. I'm just not. I'm not going to. It's just that, too. That's no immunity to what's to what's coming. That won't immunize you. But but I'm not going to. Even if it would have, I wouldn't say it because I just think it's just because it's just intellectually diminishing. I mean. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, but I said, to, you're right. It is intellectually diminishing, but I do think it's exculpatory. <laughs> I'm but sorry. I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not, but I agree. I'm not getting off that way. I anyway. Agree. And, um, but I did say to my colleague who runs the honors program, I was like, well, I would think there would be certain things that would just make it obvious that I wasn't coming from a hateful place on this. You know, did you say any of these things? And he says, well, no, as part of the historical power establishment, meaning as a white male, I have to validate dot, dot, dot. And I was like, yeah, this is intellectually moribund. Um, so it's terrifying, but, you know, I'm not going to let the thought police on either side dictate what I say or think. That's so refreshing to hear you say that. And I'm sorry that you uh, had to suffer that experience, although I'm sure it's it's not exceptional. I'm sure that uh, it is uh, somewhat common, unfortunately. Um, I wish so that apology came from somebody who actually did something as opposed to somebody who's obviously interested in books and ideas and um, conversation with people, regardless whether they agree or disagree. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you approached it uh, an absolutely tactful and, and professorial way. I mean, you, <laughs> you laid no, out... I I did not <laughs> to say that. But months later, they said to me, well, you know, I think, I guess what was happening was the student was sort of to have had second thoughts about it. And they're like, do you want to have a meeting? And I was like, well, here's what I'll say. I believe absolutely in freedom of speech. And I didn't feel that way. Do you think it would be good for me? And I had no regrets whatsoever about what I said. Do you think it would be helpful to the situation if I restated that? And they were like, yeah, maybe not. So <laughs> I wasn't all that tactful. Yeah. yeah. But in the student's defense, and I don't know him from Adam, but like you said, he simply did raise the question. Now, it sounds to me as though he's sort of a deliberate uh, controversialist, right? He's wearing uh, the, the initial hat. guy. Yes. He's a provocateur. A hundred percent. Yeah. Which so long as it's innocuous, I mean, he's not causing physical harm in the original sense of the word. Uh, you, you, those provocations are are welcome, I think. It, and again, and I'm not, I'm not in the academic setting right now. I've been in it previously, but I I was always stimulated. And usually, it would be the professor being the provocateur, in, in you know, in a, in a very controlled way, you know, bringing up an idea that may not have been considered previously. And and that's what you should get from a from a good book like yours. You know, I read it and I'm, I'm provoked by certain things. And when I thought of, you know, whatever it may be about the elite institutions and you're talking about these, you know, these systemic problems, I'm like, hmm, like how can I, using my knowledge, my limited knowledge about the university system, like how can I try to, you know, 
prod around the edges of that argument and, and, and see if I can get something out of that. Um, but that's in a more, I guess, uh, <laughs> amiable way. We're talking about provocateurs, and and I think the the, the provocative need to be need to be protected. They need our protection <laughs> because because a provocateur is like Sarah, Sarah Silverman, you know, whom you. But you said so many things that are correct. I mean, the correct role of the professor in that situation would be to direct the students to answer that question. Okay, he's challenged you. Why should he care? Right, and you might. Uh, it's an honest question. He didn't use a racial epithet. Heretofore, unquestioningly, you may have accepted the fact that Brianna Taylor 100%. matters. I articulated as as an empiricist such as yourself. You know, these need to be examined. They need to be scrutinized. And and I think you are employing the, the Socratic method in its best form. You're you're raising a question. Okay, what is virtue? Or why does this matter? Why does the death of a, of a young woman matter? Well, it, it matters for many reasons, just as virtue matters for many reasons, but you need to explore them. You can't just nod your head and say it matters and then shout down anyone who says, well, no, it doesn't matter. No, you, you, you need to be able to articulate your reasons. But, but so important also, I mean, like that young people or all people understand that you won't be damaged by having that conversation that maybe we disagree and that's okay. Maybe he's just a racist and you know what? You'll still be okay. You'll be like, hmm, that dude's a racist. I don't wanna be his friend and that's fine, right? It, 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 it's this idea that it's traumatizing to hear somebody question something which seems obvious to you. I mean, I, I'm not traumatized by, you know, people believing in QAnon. I, I, I have to say if I, I did my own podcast, all I would do is interview people with whom I had the biggest disagreement. I just think it would be fascinating. Why um, don't you? Yeah. I know yeah. you you have commitments and you have a family, <laughs> that old thing. Um, we can and talk about have, that. The, um, I would I would uh, absolutely tune into to a, a show hosted by a former stand-up comedian, fiction writer, lawyer, professor, runner, hiker, atheist. Well. <laughs> Anyway, but but the point is, I wouldn't be damaged by the conversation. I mean, you know, uh, I always, but I interview Hitler. Of course, I would. I'm, I'm not going to vote for Hitler. I might kill him at the end of the interview, but I'd be fascinated. Of, that's some good, some good views on YouTube. You'll definitely rack up a little ad revenue that way <laughs> to supplement wow. your two hundred thousand from your book sales. <laughs> but but no, and I feel that, that was a total total number. Remember, I feel lifetime. <laughs> Uh, but I feel precisely the same way, and and I can't quite understand why everyone doesn't. It seems so natural to me. Uh, maybe it it comes from uh, just an inherent curiosity about the world and about other people who inhabit this world. Um, yes. Maybe it's a, a deepened sympathy with humankind, right? And and I feel some sort of connection that maybe others don't or or haven't yet experienced. I think also, though, it's attributable to our shared mindfulness. And I know that's an ambiguous term and it captures a lot of things, but it's this sense that, you know, you are not your opinions. <laughs> you might have principles upon which your your life is structured, um, but but thoughts come and go. They are fleeting. They are fugacious. That's an interesting, that's an interesting framing. Um, right. So that's the way I've started to look at 
things, and maybe I always have, but I'm, I'm doing so more deliberately now, as though you know, a proposition might be raised. And, and I'll say this, uh, I, I think very highly of your work. I'm a little bit more conservative leaning. So be it. I can easily be, be persuaded that, you know, the arguments put forth by someone on the left are stronger than those put forward on the right. And I understand that certainly there are values that, uh, that uh, precipitated and inspired my, my opinion, but all it is is an opinion. I can have an opinion on anything and it's mutable it can change at any moment and, and that mindfulness and that ability to meditate on that fact to sort of hover above yourself and observe the brain functioning in that way i think is most useful in dealing with these with these interactions as you describe them so maybe that needs to be instilled if it can be instilled in the in the rising generation because it you're experiencing as a professor, probably the beginning of what's going to be a, a difficult wave of generational, I don't know, a generational zeitgeist where, where harm becomes increasingly broadened, that the definition becomes increasingly broadened and, and an inability to interact and exchange thoughtful ideas and opinions um, is, is more and more common. I'm interested in the connection you made. So uh, post, uh... 2016 election, um, I read a lot. I was like, what's going on here? And I wanted to teach my ethics class, which I model on Sandel's class that I took in college, which I really enjoyed. I wanted to take it to the most right-leaning place I could find. And my hypothesis was it would be exactly like the class that I've taught everywhere else. You mean to say you took your reading to the, the furthest reaches of the right? Well, that I wanted to take my class that I wanted to take I wanted to go teach. I, see. I had a sabbatical. I see. And so I ended up teaching the class at, um, they say, Appalachian State University. It's in Boone, North Carolina. The truth is it's not as right-leaning as I would have liked. Very sadly, the poorest, most right-leaning rural counties had almost no ethics classes at their local universities. Um, so that was, that was sad. But anyway, I taught the class at Boone and... It was exactly the same as anywhere else. And a student got pissed off. There was a conservative guy in the class. He was a libertarian. Love this guy. I love this guy. Um, you know, I don't just, you know, what do I even care if you really disagree with me about it? you said you're a little bit more conservative. Well, so long as, you know, uh, you don't believe that uh, a leader gets to fabricate a fiction about an election and that we're going to proceed on that. I don't really care. I mean, climate change. I would care. Well, to me, that's not conservatism. Uh, it's, it's just quite, insanity, right? It's of antithetical to the idea. And I, I think that's another problem, the, the separation of the, the cult of personality from <laughs> constitutionalism or, or conservatism. I mean, I, I mentioned Tocqueville. He's sort of my political idol, uh, you know, people like that. Burke, I, people that I esteem very highly from, from the from the old times. Very, you're very, you're very well read. But uh, so in the course, I wrote this article. You'll like it. It's in Politico. It's called "What Teaching Ethics in Appalachia Taught Me About America." Mm. It's a bit about. It's a lot about civil libertarianism. It's a bit about, but it's really about careful listening. So I interviewed. Um, oh, she she'll be before your time, but a feminist psychologist sociologist named carol gilligan but she practices and i this is i always tell you i like things that describe things i'm already doing she calls it radical listening and that's and that's what i do i mean i'm talking way way more than i normally 
would because it's your pod you know i'm it's i'm on your podcast but i would just sit and listen it doesn't you know i'd be interested you mentioned your father your relationship with your father i'd be interested to hear about that i'd be interested to hear about podcasting if you have conservative views i'd listen it doesn't bother me at all and i teach about the death penalty you want to tell me why you think people should get killed it won't bother me i i might even laugh i mean it's not unlikely to change my mind that's okay and but it's it's deep presence because i i feel like what most people are doing is they're listening because they're ready to perform right they want to make their argument they want to posture themselves in a certain way that's antithetical to listening and it's hard i mean you know like whatever i want to be cogent for you so i have to script a little bit so I'm not I'm listening 10% less than I normally would. But I think you're right. It's very deeply connected to to mindfulness. There are external stimuli and that's out there. Yeah, and you need to build that that mental fortitude to be able to recognize that the fact that yes, there is an external world in in your own interior. And and I should say that's why even though it's a modest little program, I I love doing this because all I want to do is radically listen. <laughs> of course, you might you might disagree because I have these sort of long-winded <laughs> uh, questions and prompts, but it's just really the conversations that are going on in my mind. These are monologues, and and what I want to do is is put them out into the into the ether, into the world, and and hear what brilliant people like yourself have to say. And I could just sit back and again listen to what you have to say, listen to the, the silences, the way in which you present yourself, uh, you know, the way in which you express yourself, you know, your body language. I, my only wish is that we could do it and I could do this with all people in, in person and that would just be, that would be great because there's so much that's lost in this, this form of communication in this medium. Well, podcasts are very nice. I like podcasts. I think it's a very intimate, it's a, it's, it's an, it, there's an intimacy to it that I really enjoy. And, and same, I don't think I'm that brilliant, but I, I can listen. I think if you if you're a really good listener, and you kind of have a you and you just follow the question, you kind of ask the right questions. You can. Oh, everybody has a fascinating story. Um, I absolutely agree, and and I know I may have misused the word democratic earlier in describing uh, John Henry Newman's approach to education, but. I don't think I'm wrong in describing podcasting as democratic. Now, you know, the, the joke is that everybody and his brother has a has a podcast, and most of them are unlistened to and sort of uh, unimpressive. And mine might fit into that category as well. But the thing I love about it is, and you know, the YouTube platforms is that pretty much anyone can do this. My setup is uh, now it's a little bit better. I have a, a camera at which I'm looking, but usually it's just a laptop computer with a webcam that functions occasionally, a microphone next to me that can be purchased very cheaply, plugged into the to the laptop as a USB. Uh, you purchase a, the little, um, what do they call it? An RSS feed. It might cost you $10 a month or so. And suddenly you're, you're Dan Rathers. Suddenly you're David Letterman. You know, you're this, this person who can potentially broadcast out to thousands or millions or or tens of people in this intimate fashion and i see that as being incredibly democratic now does that mean that you know institutions will fall and that 
you know, all the the inbuilt problems in our country will so suddenly dissolve. No, of course not. But I am hopeful that this form of very democratic and accessible communication will be the, in part, the remedy that I think we need, and maybe some of your younger students need, to be able to to weigh different ideas and, and maybe even take the opportunity to to create their own content and and to express themselves because like i said earlier so often we're in our own minds i'm developing these questions these prompts okay what do i want to ask professor mandary or evan <laughs> and you just get wrapped up in your own line of thinking okay well i want to sound impressive i want to sound eloquent i want to um you know use this uh, to to enhance my own image not really my goal but but those thoughts are then they need to become embodied by the actual words that you put out so you put them out and and you see how they're received and how your listener receives them and and it really refines your ability not only to be a conversationalist but just to be a human being so i, I so my hope is that a lot of people and like i said in these younger generations are are able to maybe participate in things like this so that those immediate um, retreats to claims of violence and harm uh, are, are less frequently and eagerly made. We, <laughs> we're a little bit more robust and articulate and able to, to express ourselves. And that kind of touches on one of the big reasons I, I started this, this channel and why I think you should accompany me in, in doing so and creating your own because I think that uh, along with all the other manifold things on which you've embarked, this would be a really, really good venue for you to express your your diverse array of of ideas. Well, I really, I really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate the care with which you read the book, and I appreciate the substance and spirit of all of your answers. I um, I wish, I wish. Um, I actually think the left is a bigger offender on this than the right. I wish everybody understood that we can talk across and everybody will be okay. Yeah, yeah, and I, I hope we're we're moving from the worst to to a, to a brighter and better day toward that toward that place. So I'm I think sure. that here's to that. I think <laughs> I think that is the perfect point at which to end. You've been more than generous with your time. You've given me a lot to think about. Uh, I might have to give Poison Ivy a rereading, <laughs> but I'll certainly <laughs> be recommending it as I already have to to all my listeners and to all my family members and to friends at work. Uh, I think it's an excellent book. I will, of course, uh, list all of your publications in the notes below. Um, I, I told you already, and I'm I'm sticking to this. I'm going right after Gwen Stefani and 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 those dreams. So I'll be very excited to read that into your other uh, and your other notes as well. Uh, let me give the give the stage to you just for a minute as the stand-up comedian uh, are there any other social media sites or platforms on which people can can reach you oh i i mean i'm on twitter it's just at evan mandary and i hate twitter um and uh, i have a web page and um you know what uh, i'm easy to find my email is easy to find through john jay and i think i've written back everybody who sends me if it's a reasonably kind email, certainly if anybody's interested in having a thoughtful conversation, I always respond. And, and I, I really thank you for your time. No, no, I thank you. You were more than generous. And I am one of those lucky beneficiaries of your response. Hopefully it was worth your while. Oh, uh, for sure. 
And uh, with that, I'll bid everyone farewell from Finneran's Wake. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, Daniel. Daniel. Shout, believe a shout, 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 Daniel. Daniel. Shout, believe